Hello, and welcome to this episode of My 2020. My guest today is an international statesman who has championed multilateralism and the type of collective action needed to defeat COVID-19 and other global challenges. A former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, he now has an institute of over 200 people working on these very challenges and advises governments all over the world. But like all of us, his life was appended by COVID-19. I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Tony Blair to the podcast. Hello, Mr. Blair. Hello. Thank you for making the time to speak to us. It's a pleasure, Mina. So when you reflect on 2020, how will you remember it? I mean, I will remember it as a a year when, like no other year, everything changed. So I lived my own life completely differently, posed enormous challenges for for the work that I, I do in different parts of the world, where I used to travel a lot, and then suddenly I wasn't traveling at all. But it also offered some insights and opportunities. I think for many people, it will be a a kind of lost year. But for me, I I have to say it wasn't. I mean, even though my life changed completely, and I started to work and live completely differently, it it also gave me a, a moment to kind of pause and reflect and think how the world was going to change. And I think one of the interesting things about COVID is that, and this happens sometimes with crises of such a profound nature, is that everything that was there and present before COVID has been there during it and will be there after it, but accelerated. That's my basic take. And so all the trends that you see see in the world that were there before are there now, but they're just deeper and more intense. So I want to talk about that acceleration, but before I do, I want to ask about how your day-to-day life changed. My day-to-day life changed in a very simple way. I used to travel probably two weeks every month and I stopped. And there I was in lockdown uh, with my family which was also, I mean, an interesting uh, experience, but actually worked quite well. I mean, there were bits of lockdown. If you were lucky, I think lockdown really, it also deepened all the inequalities, frankly. If, if, you, if you were in a situation, I was lucky enough to have somewhere where I could lock down in reasonable comfort, and I was with my family, you know, yes, it was a completely different life. But, you know, there were compensations along with the changes. And part of those compensations, being able to spend time with the family, um, being able to actually work in a much, in quite a productive way. I mean, for, for the work we do, we were able to do a lot of it remotely, and it didn't hugely impede our work. And in some respects, it actually helped it. But I think for a lot of other people, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that that if, if you had difficult personal circumstances, if you had a precarious job, um, if you were living in a situation already of insecurity, all of those things got worse. What do you miss about pre-COVID-19 life? Shaking hands and embracing people and just not having COVID in your mind. Look, my view of COVID is it's not the bubonic plague, obviously, but it's highly infectious. And I've come to study it a lot during the course of this. I mean, I've, be, I've become not an expert, but I've come to know a lot about things that I've literally had no idea about before around vaccines, therapeutics, you know, different types of testing. So the thing that I, I, I've missed is the human interaction. And the silver linings? I mean, the silver linings have been, yes, spending time with the family, because that's actually been wonderful. And in the first lockdown, in any event, we were with our, some of our grandchildren, and that was fantastic and joyful. And, you know, you were able to spend real time with them. The silver lining in terms of work has been that we, we have increased our footprint because we work in different countries in the world, in Africa, but also outside of Africa, helping governments change and reform. And we've actually expanded our work. And and we found our our way of working remotely 
quite good because it 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 allowed me to be much more disciplined about the day. I wasn't having to travel. I wasn't having to fit in different time zones. So really, in work terms, yes, it, it was quite productive. Do you think you'll travel less even after COVID-19 hopefully gets behind us? I think I, I will. I mean, I, you can never be sure. It may be like these New Year resolutions. That, you, know, you, you say, no, I'm definitely going to change my life now. And it never quite happens. But I think I will travel less. But I think the way that we work will change forever. The, the consequence of that, by the way, uh, if you take it out to a macro scale, is going to be enormous on the world of work. And there will be many businesses that will change. Some will grow, some will go out of business because all of that, even if we, even if we as an institute, we've got almost 300 people now working for us. If we do even 20% more working from home, and I think it's more likely to be 40%, even 50%, then you know, that, that obviously has got implications for all the services that we, we, we normally use when we're in our office space. It's got implications actually for the amount of office space we need. So I think there's going to be big changes. This this is like a kind of, it's it's a global event that's been like no other, but it will be similar in the sense that when you get a huge global event, it puts in train certain things that have consequences that don't go away. So you mentioned about your work, you do um, important work in different African countries, and you also mentioned acceleration, and one of them is digital transformations. And I wanted to touch upon the latest announcement um, with Oracle helping Ghana with their digital transformation of their healthcare records. Talk me through that as an example of some of that change. So Oracle is obviously one of the big data companies in the world, and they constructed for the United States a system which allows you to monitor patients, um, to register all their data, and will, when the vaccines start to be rolled out, will allow you to register every vaccination and be able to feed in all the information that, of the patient experience as a result of the vaccination. And I am sort of mildly obsessed with the fact that data is going to be a huge, huge question as to how we manage this COVID over the next few years, and that having the best data systems available is going to be absolutely essential. And the problem for developing countries is that they often lack these systems. So Oracle have agreed as a philanthropic, as a public good, to provide their system for any of the countries we work in, in Africa, outside of Africa, for free. So they will install the system free of charge. It's fully interoperable. The data's completely secure in the hands of the government. You know, it's it's obviously going to be a top, top system. And it will be really important for these countries because Africa, Africa, in fact, in terms of the disease itself, has been less hard hit. So if you take the whole of the COVID mortality for the whole continent of Africa, which is 1.2 billion people, that death total is less than the total for the UK. And if you took out South Africa, which has been the largest single country in Africa with, with the highest mortality, then it's it's about half the rate of the UK. So it's really a Africa in one sense, if you talk to most African presidents, they've kind of m moved on from COVID in one, in, in one way that their preoccupation is much more economic with the damage it's done to their economy. But what I say to them is, you still need to have vaccination because you want your country to rejoin the international community. And I am absolutely convinced that in the end, the only way you're going to get international business and travel going again, and tourism, is if you have a, a system whereby people essentially have a health passport, and you know you show that you've been tested, or you show you've been vaccinated, or you show you've antibodies that mean that you're immune, because otherwise, you know, countries are going to be very reluctant to let you 
come in and out freely. That requires a level of cooperation, a multilateral action that we've really seen is missing in this year. So how do you get countries to collaborate, whether it's vaccines, whether it's travel corridors? Um, do you think that that will change, that countries will actually work more closely together? I think countries are going to change. I mean, one of the things we want to do as, a, as an institute is just do an account of what the impact of, of failing to cooperate globally has meant. I believe we've probably added several months to the severity of this disease to its length and, and, and also its severity as a result of the absence of cooperation. And to me, you know, multilateralism, it's always uh, posited as if, you know, are you going to look after your own country or are you looking after other countries? But I will say to people, multilateralism is enlightened self-interest. It's not about denying your country's interests to satisfy someone else's. It's about recognizing, especially if you've got a global problem, that if you cooperate globally, you're likely to deal with it more effectively. So to give you an example, if at the outset of this disease, as we actually suggested, but we really couldn't get any traction for the idea at all, you'd had a fund established, which in the context of the vast sums of money spent on this disease would have been a drop in the ocean, but say a several billion dollar fund that you created in order to incentivize the development of rapid antigen tests. So not the complicated PCR tests that take time and that are expensive, but the sorts of tests that are now finally coming on the market, which is, you know, five to $10 tests and so on. If we'd done that, we could have been using those tests because those companies have been struggling to get the money. They've been scrabbling around trying to get the money to do this. We could have probably developed them several months earlier. Likewise, with therapeutic drugs, you've probably got three, maybe a few more therapeutic drugs, which are now shown, like the Regeneron one in, in, in the US that President Trump took. I mean, they have an impact. If you give them to people early in the pathway of the disease, they will probably save you from hospitalization or save you from intubation, certainly. So we just haven't done any of this cooperation. And I think one of the big tasks for 2021 will be to get that global cooperation and say, what has this pandemic taught us about the shortcomings of the international health preparedness system and how do we plug those and change the system to make it more effective in the future? Because the one thing for sure from every expert I talk to is this is not the last pandemic we will face. So I want to, I want to pivot and, and bring us back home to the UK um, because of course there's been a big debate in the UK about foreign aid. And this comes with the wider economic woes that are uh, facing the UK, like many other uh, economies around the world. And so the government's decision to cut back on foreign aid, you've spoken publicly about your, your opinion on this. How do you think this decision to cut back on foreign aid will impact the UK's position, but also will impact that global cooperation that's necessary for everybody to get over this? I think it's a real shame, the decision. I mean, I understand why it's being taken. And by the way, in, in public opinion in the UK, it's probably a popular decision because people will say, well, charity starts at home. Why are you, we spending this money on foreign countries and so on? But when it was my government that made this commitment, we, we trebled aid to, to Africa and to the poorest parts of the world. And when we did that, actually at a G7 summit in 2005, the Americans then followed suit and they developed uh, what became the PEPFAR program, which is probably the single biggest aid program there's ever been, um, focused particularly on HIV AIDS, but also other killer diseases. And the result of that over the past years, by the way, has been 
to reduce the deaths from killer diseases in Africa and elsewhere, measured in millions of lives. Uh, life expectancy in Africa, which was in reverse, has then gone back up. It's also, of course, encouraged economic growth. And a lot of the, the rest of the money that we've had have gone into things like education, providing food security. So a whole series of things providing actually vaccines against some of the main diseases. And it's just been a big part of saying to people, you know, we are one global community. So I understand the political reasons why this is being taken. But I do think it's a big strategic mistake for Britain, especially at a time when Britain has left the European Union. You know, so we're looking to play a, a major global role. You know, our development department and our commitment to aid gave us a very, very strong voice in, in world opinion on this. So I, I, I regret it deeply, but it, it's just an, it's, it's a feature of the fact that too often what people think of when they talk about aid, and I actually don't even like the word aid, it's an investment in our own future. So if you take, for example, just to give you a quick example, the Sahel group of countries in the northern part of sub-Saharan Africa, they're beset by um, exploding populations, poor institutions, um, high levels of poverty, high levels of radicalization, a lot of extremism and violence. You know, when we help those countries progress, we do ourselves a favor because that's where the next wave of extremism and, and immigration is going to come from. But, you know, the trouble with these arguments is they take a long time to explain to people and politics, you know, works in short headlines today. Tweets. Tweets, yeah. And so, social media is, I mean, things like the podcasts and everything and the, what we're doing now have been a great development. And so I'm not, I'm, obviously, I'm actually pro-technology and I think all of it in the end is is life enhancing. But I think social media has been a plague on modern democratic politics, I'm afraid. Modern democratic politics in Britain have largely been shaped by Brexit arguments. And 2020 in the UK will not just be remembered, of course, for COVID-19, but it's also really the year that Brexit became a reality. How has it changed Britain? It's divided Britain, the Brexit debate. How has it changed Britain is harder to answer because Britain has left the European Union politically and legally, but it hasn't yet left the single market of Europe, which it will do at the end of this year. So we're about to make the big practical change. And that's when the, the full consequences will come. Look, I, you know, I fought very hard against Brexit. I think it's a profound mistake for Britain, but it's happened and we're going to have to make the best of it. My anxiety now is that I think both main political parties, in a way, want to say, well, look, that Brexit argument's over, let's all move on. The trouble is, because we're only going in 2021 to have the practical effect of Brexit clear, because we will then have left what is our biggest market in the world right on our doorstep, the European single market, we've then got to debate, well, how do we make the best of, of the new world we find ourselves in? And that is, that is something where, you know, I can see opportunities for Britain post-Brexit. But what worries me is when the political debate says, look, we just carry on as before. We just happen to have done Brexit. No, if you've done Brexit, that means you've got to reconstruct your place in the world, economically and politically. You know, there, there are ways of doing that, but none of them involve thinking it doesn't matter. It, it's going to matter profoundly in practical and political ways. Do you worry about the union? Yes, I worry a lot about the union. I think Brexit has revived Scottish nationalism. Now, personally, I'm 
wholly opposed to separatism in Scotland or indeed for the rest of the UK. I want the UK to stick together. We're more powerful together than we are apart. And many of the arguments around Scottish nationalism are similar to the arguments as to the reason why it was not sensible for Britain to leave Europe, in my view. But you've got to accept that the combination of a a government that is unpopular north of the border, I mean, that's just a fact, plus the fact that a big majority of Scots were in favour of staying in the European Union, or at least staying in the single market of the European Union, um, that's, that's put Scottish separatism back on the agenda again. And, and it's, it's a big challenge for us. And then, of course, in Northern Ireland, because of this curious way we've had to end up, because of all the complexity of British trade and, and, and UK trading arrangements with Europe, Northern Ireland is going to remain effectively in part of the single market whilst Britain is out of it. And that's also going to cause a lot of strain, I think. If you were in office now, how would you handle both the Northern Ireland situation and Scotland? How would you win people back? So I think there's all, all sorts of arguments around, do you need constitutional change? And I've got an open mind on that. But I do think essentially it's a political problem. And I think it comes back to the same thing. We've got to forge a vision of Britain outside of Europe, which makes sense of our economy and which ma- makes sense of the fact that we are part of the continent of Europe. And we can change our political relationship to the political entity called the European Union or the commercial entity called the single market. But we can't change our geography or our history or our interests or the common values. So the question is, how do you construct, number one, a strong UK economy outside of the single market? I think there are ways of doing that, but it's a big, big challenge. And secondly, how do you create the right political relationships, including the relationship with Europe, which allows us still to cooperate in things that matter to us, even if we're out of that political structure. And finally, I want to ask you about 2021. So looking forward, what does 2021 hold for you, Mr. Blair, personally, but also what are the most important issues we should be looking towards to make 2021 more of a success than 2020? So I think for me, 2021 is all about, can you get back a sense that the world is cooperating together when it needs to, and whether it's in climate change or how you get proper health preparedness, that the world's prepared to come together for these things and to stabilize the the, the global economy that's going to suffer such a shock through COVID. And I hope the new administration in the US can provide the basis and the backbone for, for that cooperation. I think for me and for the Institute, it's really all about my, my sort of focus today is how do you use technology to accelerate development in the poorest parts of the world? And how do we, in the developed world, understand this technology revolution that we're living through, which is every bit as profound as the 19th century industrial revolution? How do we understand it, master it, and harness it for the many, not the few, you know, for, for the greater public good? And one of the things we're going to try and encourage in not just in the UK, but in the developed world, is how do we make the debate around tech between the technology people and the policymakers more than just about how do you regulate Facebook? Okay, it's important questions. But the big question is, how do you use technology to revolutionize healthcare, education, law and order, transport, the way cities are run and operated? How do we use it to change our lives for the better? That's the big challenge that I want to work on. And you mentioned the point of inequalities, because the big fear is that, as you alluded to, the digital divide. 
how do you bridge that digital divide? How do you make sure people really aren't left behind? So the, the technology is actually the solution to this as well, because in the end, so if you take a developed country like Britain, we've, we're going to face this enormous budgetary problem. And if you just look at the public sector and public services and the way we run government in a conventional way, the choice we will face at some point in the next two or three years is, how do you cut spending or raise taxes? You'll end up, if, if that's all you do, the poorest people will actually get poorer as a result of that. Because by the way, if you've got the money, you can buy the education or buy the healthcare. So technology is the way of also driving value through and cutting costs because you can do things differently and better in your public services and the way government operates. And what we've got to make sure is, number one, that we extend the, the, the capabilities of the digital economy to every single part of the country, whichever country you're in. So you bridge that digital divide in terms of access, but then you use it to transform things like education and healthcare. You know, this is going to require hugely imaginative leadership and the best possible minds on the case. And that's why one of the things I want to encourage is getting the change makers and the policymakers in the same room together so that they understand each other and can work together. Because otherwise you're going to find that the technology people are changing the world and the policymakers are just locked in a very narrow debate because, you know, let's be clear about it. For many policymakers, they're of an age and experience where they don't really know a lot about technology. And, you know, one of the things I've been able to do since leaving office is learn a lot about the world, which is both fascinating and slightly troubling because you realize how much you didn't know when you were in government. And so to wrap it up, what did you learn in 2020 that you will take forward with you? I relearned the modern context for the, the essential thing that's driven my political life by became reinvigorated with the idea that it is one global community today. And you can be proud of your country and fiercely nationalistic, and that's all fine. But in the end, if we don't take care of each other, then we won't take care of ourselves. That's the big lesson I learned. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Blair. Thank you. Thank you for listening to My 2020. I've been your host, Mina Al-Arabi. This podcast was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the series on your preferred podcasting app. Please also continue to follow our podcasts and reporting on thenationalnews.com.